Today's talk, I'm going to talk mostly about the paradoxes of quantum mechanics and how they challenge our normal ideas of what is real. Since I was a teenager, I was fascinated with quantum mechanics, and I went to college and studied it uh, with the intent of trying to figure out what these paradoxes meant. A famous physicist named Richard Feynman wrote something that I like to share with people to give them a bit of reassurance when they're hearing these things. And he says, uh, the next question is, will you understand what I'm going to tell you? What I'm going to tell you about is what we teach our physics students in their third or fourth year of graduate school. And you think I'm going to explain it so you can understand it? No, you're not going to be able to understand it. Why then am I going to bother you with all this? Why are you going to sit here all this time when you won't be able to understand what I'm going to say? It's my task to convince you not to turn away because you don't understand it. You see, my physics students don't understand it either. That is because I don't understand it. Nobody does. So uh, quantum mechanics isn't easy to understand. The problem we all have with trying to understand quantum mechanics is that we're approaching it from a limited base of reference whereas quantum mechanics is a more comprehensive view of the world. And if we try and reduce this and, make, and try to understand it in terms of a crude idea of the world, we're bound to end up in paradoxes. This idea of the base of reference I got from Dr. Wolf, who was a mystic. And in one of these tapes called uh, Consciousness and Reality, he has this to say about this idea of the base of reference. There's the familiar shift in the base of reference in the field of astronomy, that has been very important in our scientific orientation, namely the shift from the Ptolemaic system to the Copernican system. The Ptolemaic system consisted in establishing the coordinates of reference as fixed with respect to the Earth, a perfectly valid position. Then, with respect to that base of reference, we developed the system of a cosmic view, and with respect to that system, certain facts are true but true relative to the base. Those facts are, in part, that the sun goes around the earth, that indeed the whole stellar universe, with its galaxies and stars, goes around the earth, making an orbit in 24 hours. On the other hand, when the shift was made to the sun and the ecliptic as the base of reference, the ecliptic being the plane of the orbit of the earth, then it appears that the earth goes around the sun, and so on. Now many things are made simpler, many doors are open, by shifting, simply shifting, of the base of reference. In earlier days we did not appreciate the importance of the conception of the base of reference. What Dr. Wolf was just alluding to there was that in the Ptolemaic system, the earth was conceived as the center of the universe. And so if we have the Earth at the center, you have the Sun, and uh, it's going to be going around, and then you have all these planets, and you have stars, and all sorts of things, and they're all going around the Earth. If you study the heavens, you notice these planets shift with respect to the stars. If you go out every night, and you look at the position of a planet with respect to the stars in the background, it will move a little bit every night. The idea was, in this conception, was that there was a sphere, a very large one that had the stars on it, 
And then there were other spheres within that that contained the uh, planets on them, and they rotated at different rates. And so you could explain then how the planets moved with respect to the stars. But there were problems with this that led to paradoxes. The planets will shift relative to the stars, but then they start backing up, and then they go forward again, and they do all these strange movements that you couldn't really explain. And so here's a paradox when you put the Earth at the center. You have this strange movement of the planets going backward. People came up with all sorts of ideas as to how to explain this, uh, namely called epicycles. They imagined that there was a sphere going around here, and then there was a little sphere here, some sort of circular that the planet stayed on, and as this went around, these rolled, and so as one went this way, the thing was rolling backwards, and all sorts of complicated, it was sort of like the gears inside of a clock or something, you know, one was going forward and the other was going backwards, and all sorts of stuff, and it got very, very complicated. They kept having to add more of these circles and cycles and things, and epicycles upon epicycles, and it just became a terrible mess. So Copernicus comes along, and instead of taking the Earth as the base of reference, he shifted it to the sun. And what happens when you do this is that now the Earth is moving, and the other planets are going around also. And the stars are back here. And the beauty of this is that because the Earth is in motion, you can explain why these planets go backwards. In fact, using the sun as the base of reference, the going backwards wasn't a real motion. It was just an apparent motion because the Earth was in motion. Because the Earth is going around here, as it swings back this way, your point of view is changing, and so the object appears to move backward, even though it's still moving around the sun. And so with the Earth moving like this, these uh, strange epicycles were just seen to be these apparent motions. They're not real motions. And this tells us something else about the significance of change in the base of reference here, is that a motion that was seen to be real before is now considered only an apparent motion. The planets aren't really doing these epicycles. They're actually moving in their nice circular orbits. And so this is one other important aspect of shifting the base of reference, is it, is it tells us what is real and what is only apparent. In the uh, Ptolemaic system, you had to view these as real because you were seeing it from the Earth, and that's what they were doing with respect to the Earth. But if you shift it to the Sun, then this is only apparent. And what they're really doing is going in these nice circular patterns. And this was the beauty of the whole shift, is that it simplified things. Another very significant revolution was Einstein. The spatial distances between things and the temporal distances between things are only appearances now in Einstein's system. Whereas before in Newton's system, they were taken as absolute. The book has a certain length, and it has this in itself. And this was the view before Einstein. But after Einstein, the length of the book, it's only an appearance. It depends on the point of view, the reference frame. And that's because he has shifted the base of reference to another level. And so what we think as the length here, just like the epicycle, it's actually only an appearance. And the real reality is on a different level. The idea that this book has a particular length is what's undermined here. Um, and so to say that it stretches or something already presupposes that there's a space here and that it has a length. 
And so it's sort of like, well, you know, the epicycle sort of unwinds itself. Is that how it works? And you say, no, 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 no. The idea was the epicycle wasn't really there in the first place. In Einstein's view, the, the book has an existence, but it's in four dimensions. And when I'm not moving with respect to it, it has a well-defined length. But if I look at it from another point of view, it'll have a different length. And so the length it has depends on uh, my reference frame. So what appears to be the case depends on your point of view. If the Earth was moving faster or slower, these epicycles would change their form, how they appear. But that wouldn't change the planet's orbit in itself. And so Einstein's idea is that there's this four-dimensional book, and how we move with respect to it will change how it appears in our three-dimensional space. But that doesn't change the four-dimensional book in itself. And that's the unchanging, the permanent reality. And so the base of reference is the, the permanent, unchanging reference point that determines the reality of your particular worldview. So could you ever get a measurement of the book in its four-dimensional? Do you ever have that description of it? In the mathematics, yes. It's sort of like asking if you can ever know what the orbit of the planet is, even though we're moving. See, since we're moving, you're always going to see these epicycles. Right. So the question is, well, can you ever you know, really see the orbit of the Earth? Well, you can't see it in the appearances. But if you shift your base of reference, you can, you can sort of see it in your mind. The idea that took hold in chemistry was that all of these objects we see are appearances. And the reality are these, these atoms, these atomic elements. And they can combine in all sorts of different ways. And how they do that, namely the form of the reality, determines what we call, you know, a book or a cup or whatever you want to call it. And so the cup isn't real, ultimately, in, in that view. It's the atoms that are real. And the cup is composed of the atoms. It's merely a form of them. And so you might say that, that the cup is sort of just an appearance, just like the epicycle was just an appearance. Now, if I go and I explain everything in terms of these atoms... I can explain all sorts of transformations of this form. For example, how um, chemical reactions work, like when, when the log burns, you know, why there's just ashes there, and why energy is given off, and all these sorts of things. All these can be explained. There are other effects, like the burning of the sun, for example, that you can't explain unless you go even deeper and get involved with the nuclear reaction and those transformations. And the idea that matter and energy themselves are merely two different forms of some deeper thing, which is, uh, I guess, what Einstein would call the four-dimensional energy-momentum vector. Now, and this, this abstract thing is more real. It's the invariant. It's the permanent, the base of reference. And the matter on the one hand and the energy on the other are the appearances that this takes, depending on the point of view. Now, when I say point of view here, it's not, you know, where you locate yourself in space. It's more of a conceptual point of view. It's, it's where you place the, the basis of, of all your way of regarding things. 
And so if you put it in this four-dimensional continuum of Einstein, then you can see how this matter and energy can transform because, in fact, they're aspects of the same thing. And so there are these interactions that can be understood from that point of view. And in that sense, it's broader and it's more comprehensive. When we get to quantum mechanics, in just a second, we're going <laughs> to... This, this is all a big prelude sort of to prepare you for quantum mechanics because in a way I'm giving away my big secret because this, this is how I grappled and finally came to understand what the real problem was with understanding quantum mechanics and struggling with these paradoxes and saying, well, why can't I understand this? What's the problem here? The idea is that the paradox is just a pseudo-problem resulting from a limited base of reference, trying to understand something more comprehensive from something more limited. Just like when we were viewing it only from the Earth, there were these funny epicycles and we couldn't understand it, but when we shift to the sun, then everything falls into place. Or in Einstein's case, with the transformations between energy and matter, we can't understand this, but then if we shift the base of reference to this uh, four-dimensional continuum, then it's suddenly explained because they're just aspects of the same reality behind them. Take as, as an example uh, the idea that the Earth is flat. Now imagine that you think the Earth is really flat. That's the way it really is. And someone comes along and says, yeah, I just went around the world. You look and you say, what? You know, this doesn't make sense. There's no, yeah, I ran off this way and, and I came back around. You know, you go off in that way and then somehow you end up coming from the totally opposite direction. And this is something that's totally incomprehensible if you take the Earth to be flat. You can see this as an example, in this case, of this idea of how a paradox can arise because we see things from a limited point of view. And of course, the minute this person convinces you that the world is round, you suddenly see how this could be possible. You just go around the earth and you come back the other side. And so there's not a paradox anymore because the whole idea of the flat earth that made the paradox possible is totally gone. You realize that that was only an apparent. Another example of sort of a paradox arising because our view is too limited Dr. Wolf talks about an example of this. He's talking about shifting the basis of our point of view here. He says, the basis of integration afforded by the aphorisms is the radical assertion of the primacy of consciousness. In this respect, the present thesis stands in a position counter to that of the so-called scientific philosophies. In the case of the latter, matter, things, or relations are assumed as original, and then consciousness is approached as a problem. How did consciousness spring up in the universal machine? This becomes the most baffling of mysteries. I affirm that this mystery is purely artificial and grows out of assuming an inadequate base of reference. If we assume everything to be material, then you can't explain how this awareness somehow was created by this dead matter. It's just not possible. But if you turn it around, then maybe there's a way to understand how things fit together. And so for me, this is the real value of quantum mechanics, 
is that because of these paradoxes it poses, it challenges our present basis of reference, what we consider to be real. So the classic paradox in quantum mechanics is the double-slit experiment. We assume a small source of monochromatic light. The uh, light radiates toward the black screen with two small holes in it. And uh, behind here is a photographic plate. In the wave picture, if you consider this to be a source of waves, these lines would indicate sort of the crest of a wave. And it comes and it hits this, and then each of the holes acts as a source of different waves. If each line represents a crest, then where two lines cross, you have a crest from here and a crest from here, and so it'll be an even bigger crest. And this is interference. Between the two crests is the trough, and so where you have a trough here and a trough there, it'll be a lower trough. And where this crest intersects with this trough, it'll just sort of cancel it out and it'll be flat. And so these two waves approach the screen here, interfering as they do. And because of this interference, in some places you get nothing where they've canceled each other out. Some places you get a big disturbance. The two crests come together. Some places you get a big disturbance the other way where the troughs come together. And the result is on the plate you would have a section here where, say, it's really dark, and then it, it sort of fades out a little bit, and then there's a gap, and then there's a section here where it's dark again, and then a gap, and then it's dark again. And if you go through a geometrical analysis of all that, you can explain exactly why you have these crests here. You can see that, well, right here, uh, the distance is just such that the waves from here and the waves from here cancel each other out. And here, they add up together. Here, they add up together again, and there, they cancel each other out. And you can explain this pattern by considering light to be a wave. You notice, in some cases, that light can be particles. And so now, we're going to talk about particles, so we'll erase all these waves. Well, if the particle comes from here, there are two possibilities. It can either go through this hole, or it can go through this hole. Now, if it goes through this hole... Where it's going to land here can't depend on whether this hole is open or closed. On the other hand, if it goes through this hole, what appears here can't depend on whether this hole is open. Then if we let lots of photons pass through here, and they were only going through this hole, well, what would happen is we'd get a dark spot right here, and then it would fade off, and it would just vanish. And so instead of this, we'd get something... Like this, real dark, and it would just sort of taper off like that. And this sort of photographic appearance would correspond to this graph here. And the idea here is that lots of photons have gone through, and so this is actually composed of bunches of dots. Because the probability was high here in the center, lots of them landed here, and it made it very dark. And the probability was lower on the edge, and so only a few ended up over here. And uh, it sort of faded here. And so if we let it go through either hole, it will just be the sum of these. There will be a bunch that happened to hit here, and a bunch that happened to hit here. And we'll get something on a photographic plate that looks sort of like both these put together, just like they are. 
In other words, there should be no interference pattern. And that's because particles can't interfere with each other. This interference is something that waves do. So there's no interference pattern. But we know this is not correct. Because when we do this experiment, we actually see this interference pattern. Even though there are particles leaving here. When the particles hit over here, they're not hitting as if they were particles. They're hitting as if somehow there was a wave. And so we're sort of stuck in a little paradox here. If we think that the particle has in fact gone through one hole or the other, as particles do, we think, then we must get something like this. But we don't, in fact. In fact, when we let the particles go here, we get something like this. This interference effect. And since this is what happened, there must be something wrong with how we're approaching the problem. We're taking the wrong base of reference, you might say. I can't think that it went through one or the other hole. This idea must be somehow wrong. Because if this idea were the case, I would get this and not this. So let's say we go here and we look. And we take a look at, say, this hole. And we watch it as these come through. And we can notice that each time a particle goes out of here, we either see it here or we don't. And so it seems to be the case that when we look here, it does in fact go through one hole or the other. But the catch to this whole thing is that when we look here and notice whether it's gone through one hole or the other, what we get on the photographic plate when we know which hole it's gone through is the pattern that corresponds to the idea that the particle did go through one or the other hole. And so what seems to be happening here is that somehow our looking, our just looking here and knowing which hole it went through changed what, what actually happened on the screen here. There was no longer the interference. If you look here, it's as if particles went through. And if you don't look, they interfere like waves. And the, the whole idea is to understand what exactly is going on here. Heisenberg says, what is an elementary particle? He says we can use several pictures and describe it once as a particle, once as a wave, but we know that none of these descriptions is accurate. If one wants to give an accurate description of the elementary particle, and here emphasis is on the word accurate, <clears throat> the only thing which can be written down as a description is a probability function. But then one sees that not even the quality of being, if that may be called a quality, belongs to what is described. What he's talking about, the probability function here, is the quantum physicist's solution to this whole situation. When we're not looking, we describe what's happening in terms of what's called a wave function, this abstract probability function. But it doesn't represent anything waving or moving in space. It's not like a water wave where the crest is actually matter that's moved up or down. You might say what's waving is probability itself. The way the quantum physicist would describe this is that the particle leaves here, but in between, when we're not looking, we can't say that there's a particle. What there is, is a probability for there being a particle, if we were to look. And so the probability, you might say, propagates and goes through the two holes. And so in a sense, 
the particle goes through both holes, and this is how it interferes with itself. But the particle isn't manifest when it does this. It's the probability of there being a particle that goes through the two holes. And this is why the wave idea works, is because it's sort of a crude way of looking at this probability idea. And then what happens when we look here is that the particle either is here or it isn't here. In which case, the probability has to change. Because if I look and I see the particle here, all the probability is right here. I know it's there. Probability 1. Certainty. And if I don't see it, it's 0. And I can say, well, it must be over here. That's 1. And since there's 0 probability over here, there's nothing to interfere with anymore. And so I get none of this interference pattern. You do the mathematics and you know there's no real particle that takes one path or the other. You have to just sort of suspend that whole way of looking at things and work with what the mathematics tells you. There are some people that try to explain this sort of like the epicycles upon epicycles. You know, they, they try to grasp this within the ideas of materialism, of there being a particle, even when we're not looking at it. It has some existence there in a particular place, in a particular time. And this is what we're assuming if we think the thing is going through one or the other, even when we're not looking. We struggle with trying to understand this, but no one can. Even though the mathematics all work, and we can uh, apply it. This idea that things exist materially, it's a limited view of what exists, of how reality is. It doesn't have unlimited validity. It doesn't work all the time. And if we insist on this being the case all the time, we're going to be led to all sorts of contradictions and paradoxes. And this is the result of assuming too small a view of how things are. And so what this suggests, to me at least, is that in understanding this paradox, we're never going to be able to understand it if we cling on to this idea things exist in and of themselves like we're used to thinking. And so the only way to understand quantum mechanics is to shift our base of reference of what is real and to see this in terms of that. And that's what I'm going to do next week. So I've left you with a cliffhanger. Part one last week, I talked about this idea of Dr. Wolf's The Base of Reference and its importance the way that helps us to understand the meaning of paradox. Uh, this week, I'd like to get more into the details of the quantum mechanical paradoxes and the shift in the base of reference that it seems to be pointing towards. Just to review a little bit of last time, the, the paradoxes and the contradictions that we come up against are because we're approaching the problems from a limited point of view or limited base of reference. We're taking what is real to be something that's too limited. And as a couple of examples of this, first of all, there was the theory of the Earth being at the center. And the problems that arose with that were the, the all sorts of epicycles in the planets. You end up with all these, you know, gears and funny things, and it gets very complicated and very inelegant to explain how the planets move. And then Copernicus came along and said, well, if we put the uh, sun at the center and we take the earth to be moving, all these funny circles and things are seen to be only apparent motions. They aren't the, actually the real motions. The real motions are these nice circular paths of the planets. And uh, that was very nice because then the planets had this nice uniform motion. They didn't do all these funny things. 
So that paradox gets solved by shifting the base. And so these, these motions in these circles that the planets appeared to do were now seen to be, in fact, only appearances. They weren't real once you shifted the base. Another sort of example of the same idea is in relativity. Before Einstein, matter and energy were two totally different substances. And with Einstein's formula e equals mc squared, and matter and energy are simply two different forms, appearances, of some more fundamental reality. And the reason they can transform into each other is because they're really only the same thing to begin with. This is just a matter is a manifestation of this, and energy is a different manifestation of this. And so, if you keep your base of reference limited to the Newtonian frame, you have matter as real, and energy as real, and that's your base of reality. And from that point of view, the transformations between matter and energy are paradoxical. You can't understand how two different things can be related to each other. Uh, but if you shift the base, as Einstein did, and say that there's a more fundamental reality, and these are only appearances, what we thought before was real are only these manifestations of a deeper reality, then from that point of view, with that base of reference, you can understand how this transformation is possible. And so this is another example of the shift that allows us to get around a paradox. And another sort of real simple example of this was the idea of the Earth being flat and the paradox that arises if, uh, if someone runs off in one direction and then they approach you in the other direction, having gone around the Earth. If you see the Earth as being flat, this is extremely paradoxical because they run off in one direction and they somehow come to you from the other direction. And there's no understanding this if you take the Earth to be flat. Although the world appears to be flat, in reality, it's round. And so what you thought to be real here is in fact only an appearance. So the, the way I want to approach these quantum mechanical paradoxes is that the reason these things are paradoxical isn't because quantum mechanics is somehow inherently paradoxical. It's because we're trying to understand it from a limited base of reference with an idea of reality that is too limited. And so in order to sort of get a grip on what this really means, we have to be able to free ourselves from this limited view of what is real. And what these paradoxes do is they point out to us what exactly our problems are in our ideas of what is real. Because if, if we stumble upon a paradox, this is telling us that there's something wrong about our presuppositions. And so this is sort of the approach I want to take for studying these paradoxes. The first one we looked at last week was the double slit, where we have a source of, uh, say, electrons or photons over on the left, and it passes through a screen with two openings in it. And then there's a photographic plate beyond the screen upon which the photons or electrons can hit. And then we get an appearance, just like you would in, say, a camera or something on here if we develop it. We found that although particles are emitted here at the source and particles appear here on the photographic plate, if we think of particles as having traversed, we end up in paradoxes. And that's because we observe an interference pattern on the uh, photographic plate which cannot be explained if we assume that particles have gone through either one slit or the other slit. If they had, in fact, gone through one slit or the other slit, as particles do, then we would have 
simply two uniform humps here that would add up to something that would not have an interference pattern. The only way you can explain an interference pattern is if somehow the particle does not, in fact, go through one hole or the other hole. Our idea of thinking of the particle as something localized in space, like a chunk of matter the way we usually do, this idea actually contradicts the experiments that we do. And if we cling to this idea and we say that things exist as material entities in time and space, even when we're not looking at them objectively, if we cling to this idea, then we're going to run into paradoxes here, because the idea is not consistent with what we actually observe. And so what this double slit experiment seems to be indicating is that we have to forfeit this idea that things have this objective existence, that they have these properties entirely independent of whether we look at them or not. And the physicists themselves were really struggling with this because they were accustomed to thinking of the world in terms of these material particles and things. Approaching quantum mechanical phenomena with this presupposition, with this base of reference, they came up against all these paradoxes and problems and it was very frustrating to try and understand these things. I'd like to quote Heisenberg, and he talks about this. He says, During the months following these discussions, an intensive study of all the questions concerning the interpretation of quantum theory in Copenhagen finally led to a complete and, as many physicists believe, satisfactory clarification of the situation. But it was not a solution one could easily accept. He's sort of alluding here to the fact that this goes counter to so many of our preconceived ideas. He says, I remember discussions with Bohr, which went through many hours till very late at night and ended almost in despair. And when at the end of the discussion I went alone for a walk in the neighboring park, I repeated to myself again and again the question, can nature possibly be as absurd as it seemed to us in these atomic experiments? The final solution was approached in two different ways. The one was a turning around of the question. Instead of asking, how can one in the known mathematical scheme express a given experimental situation? The other question was put, is it true perhaps that only such experimental situations can arise in nature as can be expressed in the mathematical formalism? What he's doing here is he's shifting the base of reference. He's turning the question around. And so he's shifting the base. He's giving up this presupposition of what, what this classical reality was. Classical meaning the conventional concepts that Newton handed down. Instead of assuming that things are materialistically real in this experimental situation and asking how can the theory be applying to this reality, He's saying, well, maybe the reality is such that the theory is describing it. In other words, he's opening his mind to the possibility that maybe he wasn't, in fact, seeing a material thing. Maybe this was only an appearance. And if he looks to the theory, it will tell him what, in fact, is the reality. If I'm understanding correctly, Heisenberg's problem was that he had come up with this theory and experimental results that seemed to confirm it, and it was out of sync with his concept of reality. 
So he's having a real hard time believing what he was seeing and stepped outside of his concept of reality. So maybe reality is what I've dreamed up here with this theory and I'm still stuck in my old way of looking at it. Right. Well, maybe Heisenberg can help us too. <laughs> he says, the assumption that this was actually true, that switching this idea around, led to limitations in the use of those concepts that had been the basis of classical physics since Newton. And so here he's saying that his old idea of what was real is limited, and he has to expand it here in order to understand quantum mechanics. So there was this philosophy of materialism that people presupposed to be sort of universally applicable, that it held to all things in all places. And here he's found that, well, you can't just apply it to anything. When you get to this limitation point, you have to drop it. It's not the ultimate reality. It's only sort of this flat earth type of idea that has a limited application. This seems to indicate that perhaps uh, this quantum reality only applies to atoms and things, though. And, uh, and since we live on this large scale, well, what does this have to do with us? We take as the basis of this materialistic reality these atoms. But these atoms, we find, dissolve. And so what's the reality of this now? In a sense, it's only this sort of limited appearance. It's an illusion, an illusion that we use, but it's not the reality. The classic example showing how this macroscopic reality is necessarily connected with the microscopic reality is in the paradox of Schrodinger's cat. Schrodinger was the other uh, physicist who invented quantum mechanics. And he dreamed up this experiment where you put a cat in a box. This is a thought experiment. No one's done it to my knowledge. So you put your cat in this box. You put this, uh, this bottle of poison here. And uh, let's say you have some sort of hammer here that's set up and it's uh, on a hinge here so that it can swing down and break the bottle. And when it breaks the bottle, the, the poison will kill the cat. But the, the trigger to let this hammer go is connected to this detector. And uh, right near the input of the detector is this source of radioactive material. And the idea here is this quantum process in the radioactive material, it's analogous to this double slit experiment. It's a quantum phenomena, and so it behaves in this quantum way which is that you don't know what its actual state is until you've actually observed it. And so in the, in the double slit, we found that unless we looked, we couldn't say that it went through one slit or the other. So as long as we don't look, we have to say that in a sense, it didn't go through one or the other. We can only say that if we look at it. And so the same applies to this quantum phenomena, and that's that if it decays... That's sort of like going through one slit. And if it doesn't decay, that's like going through another slit. These are the two options. The idea is that these two possibilities sort of simultaneously coexist as possibilities only. Neither one is actual. You can't say that it actually went through one or the other slit. And so in this radioactive atom, you have this potential for either decaying or not decaying. And what happens is if it decays, it will trigger this detector, which drops the hammer, which breaks the glass, which releases the poison, which kills the cat. And so you enclose this whole thing in a box, and the idea is no one's looked in this box. 
Here's Schrodinger standing outside. The box is closed, it's sealed off, and so he hasn't looked at it. Neither have we. And so, what can he say about what's happened in this box? Since this is a quantum phenomena, it turns out that if someone asks him, is the cat alive or dead, he has to say, well, it's in this quantum superposition. Now, the important point here is that it's not that the cat is really alive and really dead, and we just don't know which one it is. Because that would be the same as assuming that the particle really went through one hole, or it really went through the other, and we just don't know which one. We found that assuming that it really goes through one or really goes through the other contradicts the actual interference pattern we saw. We can't even say that it really went through one or really went through the other. And so the state of Schrodinger's cat isn't really alive or really dead. It's not in either state. It's, it's only in this potential. And so in the case of the cat, the probability wave would be, you know, one possibility is it's alive, one possibility would be it's dead. And so we look and indeed we see one or the other. And when we look, there's no longer a potential anymore. There's, there's an actual, you know, one or the other. And this is the same as when we look at the holes, we do in fact see it did or it did not go through this hole, in which case this potential has somehow become actualized. And the whole paradox that this raises is, well, when does this happen? How does this happen? How does this potential become actual? When does it happen? Some people like to argue that, say, as soon as it gets into the detector, it's, it's sort of big, it's on a scale of normal objects, and so as soon as it gets here, it's actually one or the other. But the problem with that is just that uh, this detector, it's made up of atoms. And the atoms obey the laws of quantum mechanics. And these atoms become sort of entangled up in this potential. You have a potential for this detecting yes, or a potential for detecting no, whether or not this is decayed. And all these atoms together are then in this potential of one or the other. And then the hammer, it too is made up of these quantum particles. And so it gets entangled in this quantum superposition. And ultimately the cat does too. And so this whole system inside the box, we're forced to describe it as a potential between these two possibilities. And it's not actually one or the other until we open the little door here and Schrodinger looks inside. This is called the von Neumann chain. Because a mathematician named John von Neumann studied this quantum measurement process and he found out that if you apply quantum mechanics consistently to the world, this is what happens, is that these macroscopic objects get all entangled up because they're made of quantum objects. They're all made up of the atoms. And so even the quantum objects, like cats, become entangled up in this. And they're in the superposition, and we can't say that they're in an actual state until we look. Although these macroscopic objects are ultimately quantum, you can treat them as if they were these classical objects until you get down to the atomic scale, and then you can't even get away with that. And so you can think of this cat as if it were really alive or dead, because it's such a big object. You can think of this hammer as if it were a classical hammer swinging like this. 
But the reality of the situation is quantum mechanics. The cat isn't really in one or the other state. It would be like saying that this idea of the Earth being flat has limited applicability and the Earth is really round. Well, uh, you know, does that mean that the Earth is, is somehow flat and then suddenly it jumps to being round? Or the, the idea here isn't that the Earth is really flat and then somehow it snaps into being round at a certain point away from us. It's that it's always actually round. In other words, these things are always behave in their quantum superpositions according to quantum mechanics. It's just that at a certain point, namely close to atoms, we can no longer get away with thinking of them as if they were classical objects. The one thing that, that this points to is sort of the problem of, well, where does this all stop? You know, where does, where does the buck stop here? You know, well, this is absorbed by this and this is absorbed by this. What if I put Schrodinger in a box? Is he going to be in this superposition? I mean, that's, that's one sort of bizarre consequence of this, is that if you describe him as composed of quantum particles and, you know, see this person as a material thing, then, uh, quantum mechanics will force you to say, well, yes, you know, he'll look in here and our description outside of this box is that his memory state is one in which A, he's seen the cat alive, or B, he's seen it dead, and he's in this potential state that doesn't really exist in one or the other. I think we can extrapolate this to all of, of our perceived reality. Mm -hmm. That's obvious that this, there is no stopping this process, that it's all based on the quantum phenomena. Right. But, uh, just as, to relate it to your flat earth experiment, uh, if we're gonna walk down to the store, we don't need to worry about the earth is round. Uh, and in fact, we will never have to, to deal with that on that level. What implications does this have for our worldview and our, our experience as we experience it? The big consequence of this is that if we want to talk about an objectively real reality, we're forced to talk about it as being of the nature of these probability functions. And so this material reality is in fact based on this, this sort of reality of these wave functions. And so the question is, what does it mean to have that as more real than a material reality? What could that mean to us? And it's sort of this strange situation where this concrete reality seems so real and, you know, probability functions, they're just these abstract pie-in-the-sky things that the, they use to calculate. They seem so thin and empty and how could it possibly be more real? What could that mean? Dr. Wolf talked about this. One of his important ideas is substantiality, true substance is inversely proportional to ponderability. The more, the more concrete and ponderable things get, the less real they are. So in fact, the more abstract things are, the closer they are to true reality. And he says in his book, Interceptualism, the implications of the theorem substantiality is inversely proportional to ponderability are indeed far-reaching and often startling from the standpoint of habitual valuations. For here by ponderable, I mean not merely everything which can be measured in the usual sense, but everything which can be an objective content of consciousness 
whether perceptual or conceptual. In other words, everything objective and tangible is insubstantial and therefore ghost-like. The content of empiric consciousness is real emptiness. The empiric world is a mirage, though innocent enough until it is taken to be something real in itself, in which case it becomes the source of all sorts of delusions and bondages. That kind of goes to the question. (laughs) (laughs) And sort of as an example, he uses the idea of beauty. It can be an abstract idea, but it might be easier for us to relate to than something mathematical. He says, Increase in abstraction is a movement towards a spiritual orientation. As an illustration, we may take two notions, such as a beautiful scene and beauty, the former being the more concrete, the latter being more abstract. Now, the notion of a beautiful scene implies a judgment related to a concrete perceptual object, while beauty is an abstraction of a bare quality. So if I say, oh, the mountain's beautiful, you know, I'm applying beauty to this particular mountain. But if I just think of beauty, you know, that's sort of this abstract thing that's sort of like this. From the standpoint of a highly extroverted, concrete consciousness, there is an actual referent which corresponds to the beautiful scene. So the the beauty applies, it refers to the actual mountain, this concrete thing but no such real referent for the notion of beauty. This abstract idea seems to refer to nothing. It's just sort of empty. The latter notion may help to further the process of thought, but taken by itself has no real meaning, but only something like the flavor derived from concrete experience. At any rate, from this viewpoint, beauty is not a self-existence apart from beautiful objects. But no one who has had any considerable experience with introverted penetration will agree with the above judgment. There is such a thing as a direct realization of beauty quite apart from beautiful objects. In fact, acquaintance with this realization leads to the discovery that there is in actuality no such thing as objective beauty. The beauty seen is superimposed upon the object by the observer, though generally this process is unconscious. Beauty can not only be conceived in abstraction from objective content, it can also be realized directly apart from all objects. Part of the idea of taking the abstract as being the more solid basis of reality is this whole reorientation away from the concrete towards the the archetypal, the more universal. So are you saying that that because I have a concept of beauty, I'm able to see beauty in things? That there's just nothing there that was the concept of beauty? Well, your concept of beauty sort of refers to a reality of beauty, beauty in itself, if you will, that we refer to by the abstract concept of beauty. So it's not just this empty concept. Let me speak from a mystic's point of view, because one of the fundamental principles of all sacred traditions is that happiness does not depend on outside objects. Happiness is something that's native to consciousness and is always there. So an analysis from that point of view means that when we get happiness from some outside object, 
in a sense, it is a reflection of the true happiness. And we mistake it for being in the object. So when the object vanishes, then we become unhappy. But if we could turn attention around and see the source of that happiness, we would see that it's there all the time. So from a very practical point of view, you'd be happy all the time. You wouldn't be constantly deluded by thinking that happiness is something that depends on all these objects, which themselves are all impermanent. So your happiness isn't then dependent on what's going on around you. In a sense, from a practical point of view, this sort of reorientation of your worldview can set you on a path of personal discovery that otherwise a materialist worldview would never lead you to look at. One of our most serious problems in this particular culture is that we have this, this bizarre worldview called materialism, and that <coughs> prevents us from exploring these realities. It's a degenerate sort of worldview. It's a worldview of people who've lost their spiritual roots. Mm-hmm. We think of we've arrived. Science has brought us, you know. And what's interesting about this is that science has now gone beyond that. And if you want to be a materialist today, it's no longer a scientific theory. And that's important to us today. We look to science, you know, science tells us what's real. And when science no longer tells us the world is materialistic, if you want to believe it's materialistic, go ahead. But it's a superstition, basically. That reorientation, that suddenly looking at your world and saying, wait a minute, all these things I've thought about, well, maybe they're not true. That opens up a tremendous amount of questions. That opens up a whole search. And what is true? What is real? Does this also relate to how Plato talked about beauty and truth as archetypal things? I think so. What seems to be more fundamental is this archetypal sort of reality, this abstract reality, seemingly abstract. But in fact, as, say, what Dr. Wolf, a mystic, says, that these abstractions are in fact more real than the concrete things. And it's only because we're we're extroverted, we're oriented towards these material objects that we we see these as somehow empty. And once this turnabout is made, they can be seen as, in fact, the reality upon which the particulars are based. I guess what I'm trying to argue is that this quantum mechanical reality, it's an analogy to this archetypal level of abstraction, And it's the same idea, basically, that it's more fundamental than the particulars. The other thing that quantum mechanics seems to point to is consciousness itself. When we do this Schrodinger's cat experiment, we start with this assumption of a limited base, that everything's composed of matter. We trace this chain to, let's say, the person, and then the person here is absorbed into it. And then we're standing out here, and supposedly our body itself, our eyes, our brains, it's all composed of quantum objects. And so our physical existence is going to be totally absorbed in this too. And so if everything is physical, then according to our best theory of physical science, nothing will ever exist. It will always be in this potential state, and it will never be actual. We can never actually perceive anything. Because when we perceive things, it's not in this potential state. And so if we assume that everything is matter, then there's no matter. There can't be, because there's nothing to observe it. The matter can't sort of create itself. It's We get in a circularity here. And this is the real uh, essence of the problem of the collapse of the wave function, the uh, measurement problem. If we assume a material reality, there's no... There's no end 
to the chain. Because in order to end the chain, you need something non-material that the quantum mechanics can't absorb into this superposition of potential states. And this points to something non-material, which you could describe as awareness or consciousness. The paradox of trying to explain how this chain comes to an end arose because we were assuming that there was nothing non-material, that the world is only composed of objects and no subject to observe them. And if we recognize this fact, then there's no problem here, because there's a subject to observe the objects, and the wave function can collapse. And so I think the other thing that quantum mechanics points to is this fact, that we need consciousness or a subject in order to explain what happens with objects. The two aren't independent of each other. To close everything, I'd like to suggest a sort of metaphor for understanding what happens here, which is a metaphor that has been used before to explain the nature of how things are. That's the metaphor of Plato's cave. He's describing here our state of ignorance, in a sense. He says, Imagine our origin or our nature in respect of education and its lack to such a misfortune as this. Picture uh, people dwelling as in a sort of subterranean cavern with a long entrance open to the light on its entire width. And conceive these people as having their legs and necks fettered from childhood so that they remain in the same spot able to look forward only and prevented by the fetters from turning their heads. Picture further the light from a fire burning higher up and at a distance behind them, and a road along which a low wall has been built as the exhibitors of puppet shows have partitions before the men themselves above which they show puppets. The idea is that there are people here who uh, who hold puppets up here, little objects, and they walk back and forth along here. And these people here are sort of strapped down so that they can only see the wall here, can only look forward. And the men are carrying past the wall implements of all kinds that rise above the wall, and human images and shapes of animals as well, wrought in stone and wood and every material. Some of these bearers presumably speaking and others silent. And the person he's speaking to says, a strange image you speak of, and strange prisoners. And Plato says, like us. For, to begin with, tell me, do you think that these men would have seen anything of themselves or of one another except the shadows cast from the fire on the wall of the cave in front of them? How could they, he answers, if they were compelled to hold their heads unmoved through life? And again, would not the same be true of the objects carried past them? Surely, if then they were able to talk to one another, do you not think that they would suppose that in naming the things that they saw, they were naming the passing objects themselves? Necessarily. So these objects cast these shadows here, but since these people have only looked at this wall their whole lives, they think that this sort of shadowy existence is the reality. They don't realize the fact that the true origin is the fire and these objects back here that are projecting these shadows. He goes on to explain it a little more. 
<clears throat> and finally says, This image then, dear Glaucon, we must apply as a whole to all that has been said, likening the region revealed through sight to the habitation of the prison, and the light of the fire in it to the power of the sun. And if you assume that the ascent and the contemplation of the things above is the soul's ascension to the intelligible region, you will not miss my surmise. But God knows whether it is true. So he's saying that these objects we're seeing here is the analogy to the appearance of sensible objects in this world, and that the ascent to the Platonic ideas, these archetypes, is analogous to turning our heads around and going up out of the cave to see the true light. You could sort of take this whole metaphor to be analogous to what's happening in quantum mechanics in the sense that the the material reality is only this appearance of this underlying archetypal quantum mechanical reality. In closing, then, I'd just like to say that what we can conclude from all this, I think, is that quantum mechanics certainly seems to contradict our ideas about what is real. And certainly the physicists agree with the mystics, at least in that respect, in the sense that they say that what we think is real is not actually real. And so what is in fact real is then, I guess, up to each one of us to decide if we accept to take on the challenge of discovering for ourselves. Thank you. Thank you.